Jared DePasquale is a director and producer. His portfolio of commercials and branded content includes work for Ford, Wild Turkey, and the first ever custom episode of the hit show, Hot Ones, for Universal Pictures and DreamWorks Animation. But his path to directing wasn't linear. Before directing and producing, Jared spent some formative years as a sound mixer on film sets. I went to school for directing. When you get out of school, they don't hire you right away to be a director. Started just doing sound gigs just to, to pay the rent. While spending time working as a sound mixer, he wasn't just working on audio. He was also observing. Wouldn't change that trajectory that I've had because I learned so much being on a lot of different types of sets, a lot of sets with no money. I learned what not to do. Simultaneously, he was building a catalog of work as a director. I did like these little artist profile videos. You know, I'm doing this, I'm getting paid to do sound gigs, but I also do this now. Coming up, Jared explains his path to working in the commercial space and breaks down his approach to directing and producing branded content for Ford and a custom episode of the show Hot Ones. We then explore the evolution of branded and internet content. All that coming up very shortly. From the New York City Center for Media Education, this is CME Presents, where we explore how the digital stories and media that we watch, listen to, and experience are created. I'm Jacob, and this is a conversation with Jarrett DePasquale. I'm just going to hit this record yeah. button Great. here. We're recording. And, uh, you know, Jared, it's all about to happen. Let's do it. How are you feeling? Feeling pretty good. Life is good. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Of course. Thank Appreciate you for having it. me. You're here today, of course, to talk about your work in the commercial space, the branded content space. I think a lot of times when people jump into the creative visual space, depending on who they are, they have different goals. Sometimes people, their goal is to right away move into the commercial space as soon as possible. Right. Maybe others, they're interested in working on small indie projects. They're not necessarily even thinking about making a living off of their artistic work yet. They're just totally. trying to kind of find their footing creatively. When you started this whole game, mm-hmm. Did you have particular goals in mind of where you wanted to be? Were you like, well, I'm going to at some point start working in the commercial space, the branded space, or was that not really even on your radar? I wouldn't say that was on my radar at all. A lot of what I was responding to in film school and coming out of film school was a lot of indie features, a lot of small budget stuff. And um, that's where I kind of saw myself living for a little bit, just in terms of work and then the kind of stuff I wanted to put out there. And where did you go to film school? Uh, I went to the School of Visual Arts. Okay, nice. Um, you're a, you're an NYC native? Yep. Yeah. Well, I'm from Long Island, so actually right. I think uh, New York natives might reject me. But, I see. You have uh, to be careful with your words. Yeah. My wife is from Queens, so I believe I've uh, been outright rejected multiple times in terms of being a New York native. That's I'm cold. from Long Island. Very, very different. Okay. Yeah, I actually, I went to school for directing, and then no one told me that when you get out of school, uh, they don't hire you right away to be a director. So that caught me off guard. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, it feels like that should be lesson number one. But I had a production teacher who was a sound mixer, did giant stuff. He did um, The Godfather, he did The Exorcist, Sansa the Lambs, and he was kind of retiring as I was graduating. So a friend of mine, we both kind of got into sound. We were doing some sound while we were still in school, kind of broke up his kit, sold his kit off, and, and we kind of broke it up between us and started just doing sound gigs just to, to pay the rent. 
So you're going on a location and doing a location sound? Yep, kind of everything. A lot of indie features, low budget, no budget stuff, a lot of festival stuff, commercial, short films, some branded content later, right before I kind of got out of it, that became like a newer thing, but a lot of indie features. So I'd be on location for a month, two months, usually not New York, usually kind of in the middle of nowhere. How long are you doing that before you transition out of that space? And was it intentional to leave the audio world behind? Or is that just something that, you know, was happenstance? Yeah, I didn't even mean to get into it in the first place. It was kind of just like, uh, my feeling was I could still meet people who were making the kind of work that I want to be making. And I think like everybody, you kind of present yourself as I'm doing this and this is what I'm getting paid for, but I really want to be working on this. And I've been fortunate enough to be able to say that over and over again, and then it actually started to come to fruition. So did it for about, I don't know, I want to say seven years, six or seven years. You did your time. You're yeah, like, I quit sure. yesterday and today I'm doing <laughs> what I like. Yeah, for sure. A lot of the movies I worked on saw a lot of success, which was really exciting, but I also saw that that success doesn't necessarily lead to what you think when you want to get into films. You know, the Robert Rodriguez, Quentin Tarantino, Sundance stories, that doesn't exist anymore. The myths were lies. Yeah, I mean, and that's what I think a lot of people go into film school for, just thinking, cool, I'm going to make my calling card feature, and then all the doors open for me. And working on stuff that I, I saw get that those doors open for them, that's not really exactly what happened. I was like, oh, shit, that's not, uh, that's not how it works, huh? So you had a, like a front row seat to what actually happens. Yeah, which is you make your feature and then, I don't know, it's, you know nothing, nothing happens. And then you make your <laughs> second feature and again, nothing happens. And, it, you know, they play at festivals, but it doesn't guarantee anything. Yeah, in terms of monetary compensation, right. certainly not. Right, or anybody knocking on your door to, you know, start paying you to make any of these things. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. It, I think that probably got me a little jaded very mm. quickly, too, because I was like, ooh, I didn't even get to make anything yet. Now I'm already realizing the kind of harsh harsh reality here. That probably frightened me a little bit. So stuck around in sound for a little while because at least I knew I could make some money and I liked who I worked with and there was always opportunities. So as you're working in that sound space, yeah. are you plotting in terms of a next move or is there just kind of this organic progression where you're working in sound and then certain opportunities arise? I did start to think about looking for producing opportunities in which I could maybe come in for a lower rate or rent out my gear for nothing and help more on the production side and also be saving money on the budget. If there were opportunities like that, especially with producers that I had worked with before, happy to take those opportunities on. And I did a couple of those. And at the same time, I started producing and directing smaller profile videos. Probably that was around six years ago. My wife at the time worked for a gallery in Chelsea and they wanted to promote shows that they had coming up. So we did like these little artist profile videos and nice. they were used to promote the show and those got some traction and then they noticed kind of an uptick in foot traffic for the gallery. So it's like, oh, you know, this is something that maybe we can capitalize on. And then I was using that work to show other publishers or other smaller production companies that I was working with as a sound mixer. Again, you know, I'm doing this, I'm getting paid to do this, but I also do this now. And um, at that point, then having the work to show opened a lot more doors. I'm just thinking about how quickly the internet has evolved. Sure. When you look back, do you feel like the way those videos gained traction was a product of the time where the internet was maybe a bit more open and less TikTokified, Or do you feel oh, sure. like... You know, if you made those today, it would be a similar situation. 
I'd be making very different videos yeah. yeah, today. I think those were still something where, you know, and this is what I had been up, been making up until fairly recently, were these kind of like five-minute profile videos live on YouTube. You know, you do some sort of 30-second cut down for social media, but it wasn't necessarily thought of to be on. I mean, TikTok wasn't even a thing. It wasn't even right. something I was thinking of. And the way you would make it would be so differently just to get the, the content across. How would it be different? Um, all of those artist profile videos that I did are very slow videos because, I mean, you have to you have to show all the art. You have to get a little into process and stuff. It's not as flashy as I think something that you might just want to kind of quickly catch on your phone. So it would just kind of be reprogramming, I think, how you're selling it. The flip side of that is I don't think that's necessarily indicative of the work or the artist itself mm. for at least most of the artists that we were covering. So off the top of my head, I don't even know what the middle ground would be there because then I'm just like putting on a type of creative that isn't in the world of the artists that we're profiling. Right. Yeah. It seems like there's kind of this tension there between trying to represent where an artist is coming from or their point of view while also like selling the products so people show up to For it. sure. And I also think it, it depends on audience too. I think the types of people who are going into this gallery space aren't necessarily looking for something on TikTok that's super, super flashy and fast moving to kind of walk into a gallery and potentially buy artwork. So yeah, I, I don't know. I don't even know if the gallery owners would think, uh, I want this on TikTok in the first place. So I might be able to like avoid it completely. Yeah. There's still an opening in the gallery space, people. Yeah, yeah, I guess. If for anyone who's doing that, I don't know. If you, if you can figure that out, you might be able to make some money. There you go. Yeah. So you're making these short profile pieces. It sounds like those are gaining traction. That turns into making other projects. Yeah. At what point are you transitioning out completely from the audio space and saying, well, I'm a producer, director, writer? I started working uh, in a freelance capacity for Group 9 Media. So they were bought not too recently by Vox, but it's like uh, Now This and Thrillist and a couple different publishers. I started working for them as a producer. And I had worked for them previously as a sound mixer, but again, was showing them work I was doing as a producer and a director and then came on to start doing branded content for them. When getting paid as a producer outweighed doing kind of freelance sound gigs, and then because I was doing this like Monday through Friday producing job, I couldn't take longer feature jobs. It kind of just was a no-brainer. I didn't necessarily need to sound mix anymore. And if I wanted to, you know, I could pick up some money on the weekend. If the gig was good, I would do it because I had my kid. I owned everything. But um, I started doing it kind of less and less. And then as a producer, running my own set, knowing what it is that I wanted to capture, the people I was bringing on, the way everything was running, getting more and more confident in that and my skills and abilities in that, it became less appealing to be a sound mixer where then I had really no control. And I didn't want to certainly show up on set as the grouchy one because I'm just like, well, I wouldn't do it this way. Once you become that person, it's like, it's time to go. Once you're the judgy guy in the corner being like, oh, you're going to do that? For sure. And But what I have seen, which which is great, is, is a lot of people that I work with, a lot of crew that I work with who have technical skills are kind of transitioning out of these technical positions that they've been working in, or these crew jobs, to take on more producing opportunities. And I think they run really great sets because they know all the garbage that they have to deal with. That's with, what it is, huh? Just garbage. Yeah, for sure. I mean, just like, you know, productions that are a little janky and just, yeah. you know, um, kind of how people get screwed over. And it's like, well, if I had the opportunity, this is how I would run it. And a lot of people are saying, actually, now I'm just going to, I'm going to take that if I can find it. And they, they do run really great sets because I think they're so aware of time management, how people are treated, what makes up a day, and then how 
they can kind of maybe better run that set because they've been in the opportunity where they were on the other side. One thing that strikes me is the term producing varies depending sure. on in what world you're in and what company you work for, totally. how much you're being exploited at said company, all these things. Totally. Sometimes the producer is like the director, executive director, cinematographer, yeah. editor. When you're producing in those early days, mm -hmm. what does producing look like for you? Yeah, that is, it is always like a tough title because it does mean a lot of things. But I do mean uh, in terms of hiring all the crew, mm -hmm. getting locations, permitting, getting people paid out, kind of soup to nuts, handling the, the production itself, and then post-producing as well. So seeing something through until it goes live. At that point when you're producing, what kind of work are you producing? What's the content? So when I start working for Group 9, that's all branded content. So we did a lot of like um, real-life people that had, like, we did this thing for Netflix. They had a new Benji movie. Benji's like a, a dog. Yeah, yeah. So we did a couple. Classic. Yeah, we had a couple videos where people had uh, dogs that did undog-like things. But they were, I mean, they were real people, and then we just kind of, like, profiled them and, and their dogs. So that's, like, branded content for Netflix in promotion right. of the movie. They'll reach out to any publisher, like in this instance, it was for Now This, to reach out to Now This's audience to let them know Here's the movie. Here's when it's coming out. This is kind of what it's about. Okay, so you're working at Group 9. You're, yeah. you're doing these iconic Benji, the dog videos. <laughs> yeah, iconic make, for sure. Yeah, making it happen. Mm -hmm. And from there, at that point, how long are you working there before you branch out a bit more and you know, begin working on some of these projects we'll talk about today, working on projects for Ford, Alexis, Coach, Wild Turkey? I worked at Group 9 as a producer for... I want to say around six, seven months. I was there in a freelance capacity. Okay. And then took a couple more sound gigs that just kind of paid really well. Couldn't really say no to. I was, Can't leave it behind. That no. sound keeps calling you. It's hard when like the gear is just kind of like right there in your, you know, in your closet. And also I was like gearing up to pay for my wedding. So I was like, oh, there's some things, you know, you just got to do for money. So yeah. did that and then was hired by Complex Networks kind of near the end of 2018, pretty soon after I sold my sound kit, which helped actually pay for my wedding more than anything, uh, getting rid of it. Was that a pivotal moment in your life when you handed over that kit? I mean, that feels like the end of one story and the beginning of another. There's no turning back once you give up that sound kit. It was very funny because I did not want to do it anymore. Meaning you didn't want to do audio anymore. Yeah, just it wasn't like I couldn't even believe I had done it for as long as I did. I had kind of hit a ceiling in terms of I wasn't going to join the union as a sound mixer. It wasn't necessarily something I was super, super interested in, in honing my sound mixing craft any further. And the kinds of gigs I was getting, which were either these branded pieces or these indie features, I kind of knew where I was at. And unless I was looking to invest a lot more money into my gear and my skill set, in all honesty, I didn't want to go any further than that. So it was a clean break. It wasn't It wasn't heartbreaking. Yeah, for sure. My buddy tried to get me out of retirement a couple months ago because he was working on a uh, TV show that's coming out soon that's based on a video game that we both like. And he was like, just come out. Come out of retirement. Be my utility just so we can hang out <laughs> on this this job. But I, I couldn't do it. You couldn't do it? Were there, were there that many scars on the audio set? Or? I think I would disappoint him, honestly. Oh. I think, uh, I think it's something that's all kind of disappeared from me. Been out of the game for a bit too long. <laughs> yeah. All right. So you you give up your sound gear once for all. I am curious, are there any 
initial lessons you're learning as you're producing and working on this brand and content that you hadn't anticipated when you came from the audio world? I mean, it's a it's a totally different skill set. It's a totally different language. And I think that's something that I still continue to try to hone in on is the difference of speaking production and what any sort of creative change or timing change, what those cost implications are, what the crew implications are, but then also being able to translate it back and forth on the client end in terms of what they're looking for and what they're asking for and finding that middle ground. It's not that I didn't have that skill set. It was just in a very specific world. Mm-hmm. And now I kind of need to open it up, of course, to all departments uh, in terms of needs across the board. So that was a skill set that I had just because I had already needed to talk to production as a sound mixer in terms of what I need. And I got to see firsthand how that influences just what makes up a day. And now, okay, blow that up to, you know, a thousand. At that point, are you kind of learning trial by fire? Or you feel like because of your background, you have enough understanding to make it through the day pretty easily. How are you picking up this knowledge or is it already ingrained? I don't know. I think it's just it's just watching people. I think because for so long, mixing was not my core interest. So I did try to stay as involved in production and the creative end as possible. And I had a lot of friends who made movies and I would work with them kind of closely in terms of everything they needed while they geared everything up. So I, I was just kind of like a sponge at that point for mm-hmm. so long that I knew what needs to go into certain conversations and then just was confident in myself and in how I would explain those things to certain people to get what I needed out of those situations, but also, of course, to, to figure out that at the end of the day, everybody's walking away happy. I think that's kind of, like I was saying earlier, when I've noticed a lot of people kind of turn to production recently, mm-hmm. um, I think that is a trait that you do need to have. You can't really just like live in your own world. It is very easy to just kind of sit at your mixer and tune everything out until, you know, someone calls action. But I do think if you want to expand your skill set and open yourself up to new opportunities, you do kind of need to pay attention to everybody's needs, certainly when you then start producing. So so then you move forward. We're, we're doing a lot of timeline jumping, but we're back yeah. to the complex yeah. era. And, you know, it seems, at least from me standing on the sideline, that you go from strictly producing to producing, but with more creative control in terms of visuals and directing. I was hired at Complex as a senior producer. So kind of what the team structure was at the time was a a few different producers in terms of skill levels. So from junior to senior level and projects would be assigned out. Are you having any input in terms of what kind of projects are being produced or is there someone else doing that legwork? Just in terms of like how a potential video or photo project might come up is a brand is sending out an RFP, so a request for a proposal. And they'll go out to multiple publishers to try to reach their audience with whatever new product or messaging they're putting out into the world. So from there, it kind of gets disseminated from an account director, whoever's the sales rep on that, to a few different teams. So the design team, the talent team, and the production team, a lot of other teams as well. Simultaneously, it's being... Exactly. And then we'll all kind of be involved in a brainstorm in terms of what is it that we could bring to life here for this brand and their new messaging, new product, what have you. And we might tier that out a few different ways. So at X dollar amount, you can get this, Y, this, and then there's like this, you know, Z option, pie in the sky, a multi-part series, and there's some sort of party or um, experiential 
activation as part of it and all these social bells and whistles. And whoever the producer is working on that will maybe put together a timeline in terms of if we were to start work, cost those options out. Is there any framing at first in terms of the parameters of these projects? Like, is there a brief that's sent to you when you think about these possibilities? Or is it all taking place in the doc portrait space? Or, you know, how much room is there? In the RFP, there usually is enough of a brief to get you started in terms of the audience that they're looking to hit. And there, there's an idea for an in it's usually not super, super vague where you have no idea how to even start. The other thing, too, is that if it's coming to a publisher, you kind of know what works, especially working at Complex. There are not only like their own series that are always on, stuff like sneaker shopping and hot ones. There's also just like tried and true methods mm-hmm. that we can point to and, and that probably the brand might have seen already and they want something similar or in that space. So you kind of know how at least you're going to get started. You could go off from there. Right. So clients are coming in with certain expectations in terms of what you do in this space. Right. Especially, you know, every salesperson works in a different vertical. So maybe like the auto salesperson, I'm assuming, I don't work in sales, but I'm assuming they're sharing like-minded content that we've probably produced in the past. And there's repeat clients, so sometimes they just want the same exact thing, more of it. So a producer on the team would then create the, you know, potential budget for this, a, a timeline. It goes back and forth forever. Um, Creative changes. Budget always changes. You kind of compromise and justify everything. If and when it sells through, then it's whatever budget you kind of sold through in in pre-sale, it's yours to execute against. So it's a few different producing jobs in one, kind of going back to your earlier question, in that you're a creative producer, you're a field producer, you're a line producer as well because you're also bringing people on and you're in charge of that budget, and you're post-producing. So you're seeing something through until it launches on the website. Was there ever this point where you're like, I just signed up for this to make sick visuals. Uh, I didn't know I was going to be figuring out the costs flow and all this other stuff. Uh, every day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How much of your Java complexity says uh, creative in the traditional sense, whatever that means, versus crunching the numbers and thinking about locations and just thinking about the minutiae? I've been very fortunate in that. So I started as a senior producer, and then um, I became the executive producer of Branded Production. So I was managing the team of producers. I was also then occasionally directing videos as well. So I was kind of running three jobs at once in that I was uh, managing a team and then producing or kind of more so agency producing certain jobs in that I would bring on a production company to kind of help facilitate a lot of that on the ground production work and then would sometimes direct these as well. So I was getting to do a little bit of everything in terms of producing and directing. So then seeing, overseeing creative, maybe from as early as like the RFP stage or depending on how many projects I was on at a time, more in the weeds on the production side. In terms of, and we were kind of visiting this a bit earlier, mm-hmm. but in terms of thinking about these collaborations with different brands, yeah. it seems pretty complex in the sense that sometimes you're working with a few different entities at once, and, sure. and they may have their own idea of what is good for the brand or themselves. Totally. How are you negotiating and thinking about how are these aesthetics going to bridge the gaps between, say, a few different brands or entities in a way where everyone's satisfied? When you're talking in the pitch room and talking with the designers, the whoever else working, the director, or if you're the director, are you thinking in those terms as well? 
You kind of have to because, I mean, it does have to get routed through the client and the agency, but also there's a lot of like internal sign-off that has to happen as well from creative directors, depending on where and what you're making. It might be like editors and chiefs of, of certain channels. So there is a lot of internal alignment that needs to happen to make sure that we're creating content that's not just a commercial um, that is going to work for our audience and make sense for what we're putting on our channels. Forgot what your original question was, but I knew I was going there. No, no, you're, okay. you're going there. Okay. The, the original question was really just about how you're staying true as possible to all these brands simultaneously if right. it's a cross collaboration. Right. It's tough. It depends. It depends on like what the product is and and what the messaging is. A lot of it because it they are profile videos does fall on the talent that we're bringing in and making sure that that alignment makes sense and that the work that they do kind of speaks to whatever now brand they're speaking for. And then when you're doing kind of like a deep dive into somebody's career, somebody's process, or a lot of what we would do is like collab videos. So creator X is making a capsule collection for this brand. Then it all makes sense because this person's bringing their work and their ethos to this other brand. And, and that's kind of like an easy alignment there. And at that point, there's probably so much sign off already before we even get to the shoot. Because we know exactly what we're making. We know exactly kind of what the questions are that we're asking. So all the messaging is coming through appropriately for everybody. You discussing in that context of yeah. like an artist working with a brand reminds me of a particular video you did for mm. Ford. The artist, Sam Lau. Yeah. And it was a partnership between Complex Networks and Ford Maverick. Right. I'm wondering, based on what we were just discussing, if we can break down a bit what that collaboration looks like. We have this artist, Sam Lau, who's a rug tufter. Mm -hmm. She does a lot of art in the rug space. So she's creating these rug art pieces by creating designs on fabric. And in this video for Ford, Sam creates a custom piece for the Ford Auto Company. Yeah. And as Sam is making this custom piece, the branded content video simultaneously delves into Sam's artistic process. The piece then concludes with Sam's final custom rug for Ford. Yeah. What does it look like when you're working with this large company like Ford? And sometimes a viewer may not expect someone working in the fine arts space to partner with this large company. Where's the starting point in terms of deciding on branding and visual aesthetics that will work for both parties? That one from, I don't totally remember how it started in the pre-sale phase, who brought up rug tufting to begin with. I want to say it was complex. Do you have any idea how they might even think of rug tufting as the it would have been, avenue? Yeah, I uh, I know exactly who, who it would have come from. I don't know why rug tufting started. I, okay. I, but uh, I do believe that built Ford Tuft was in the original pitch, which I loved, and then legal did not approve. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, <laughs> they screwed up. Yeah, I agree. Um, <laughs> Drop the ball. And... So what it was going to be was complex and kind of our internal talent team and, and using our resources, we would present Ford with options for rug tufters and they would create this one-off Ford rug. Uh, why would somebody do that who worked kind of like in the fine art space? I think it just brings more, more eyeballs onto their work. Um, sure. Working in the branded space is always funny because I think it becomes less surprising that people just 
I mean, I hate to say just just cut a check. Sometimes that's it, that's really all that it is, and it's like everyone's still going off and making their own work, but having a brand partnership. And it's not like it's a commercial thing. It's not like they become brand ambassadors for X amount of years. It is usually just like a one-off thing with like an exclusivity for three months, six months, something like that. But um, I feel like I've never worked on something that the partnership made no sense whatsoever in terms of like who we were pairing up. Yeah, and to be fair, I don't necessarily mean it makes no, no sense. No, 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 for sure. I just mean from like an outside observer, they may not expect this cross-pollination to occur. I mean, sometimes it's honestly as simple as so-and-so gets in this car to drive themselves to work or to drive themselves to get the ingredients or supplies or whatever, and, and that's it, and that's all that it is. And you try to find a like-minded messaging in what the brand's messaging is and, and the artist's own personal ethos. And that's that in itself is is the bridge itself. And now you got the car in the video, and it's driving them to the thing that they love to do. And sometimes it's ha- it has to be that easy because otherwise it's just like if someone wants to do a video where there's a car and it's a chef. I'm what like what else are you gonna do? You only have so many vehicles. Yeah, there's no only, pun intended. Yeah. yeah, but it's like you know there's only so many things you you can do after a while. So that's what I was saying even earlier. Like there are templates that you kind of repeat a little bit in terms of. Here's the kind of brand, here's the type of talent that they're looking for, and here's the audience they're looking to hit. There is a, a recipe there to, to figure something out. Right. And I imagine that's probably also very particular based on also what we're saying to what company the right. brand's reaching out to. So for like Complex, I imagine Ford had an understanding that Complex kind of makes a lot of pieces about culture and right. artistry, things like that. Exactly. So, you know, for that one specifically, um, Sam created designs for the rug, then the rug needs to be okayed by the agency, by Ford and and their legal team and the way that the logo is being used and how everything's being presented. In directing that piece, I'm also creating a treatment. So letting them know what the look and feel of the video is, cinematography, how sound is going to play into it, how we'll reveal the rug and the process that we'll put on camera. How detailed is that? Is that pretty detailed treatment? Yeah, I try to get pretty detailed. What I hope for, and I think this is also something that I've just learned over time in all the different avenues that I've worked, is you don't want too many questions on the shoot day itself. There should always be room for experimentation, but there shouldn't be, especially when a brand is, is there and you know people putting up the money show up, you don't want anyone to be guessing about how, especially like their product shows up. Like they, everyone should have a very clear, clear idea of already how that's going down. Because that's where you lose a ton of time. That's when you end up not making the video that you planned on or just like cutting things wildly because all of a sudden there's a lot of conversations that need to happen on the day while the clock is running about how something's being featured. When you're creating these detailed treatments, how much are you thinking about innovating versus following trends? In other words, in the commercial space, a lot of times you'll notice that there are certain visual aesthetics or choices that define a certain era, you know, even if that era is like four months long. Yep. When you're thinking about a treatment, are you thinking about this this choice of direction could elevate this product, or is it more like we're kind of fitting in the puzzle pieces of what makes a quote-unquote complex image work? I think it's probably a little bit of both. I think a brand is coming to a certain publisher because hopefully, though I've seen this not happen, they know what the aesthetic is and they know the type of video, the type of feel that they're getting because it's what's going to resonate with the audience. At the same time, it does kind of fall on the creatives who are, you know, putting the video together and the treatment to find a 
That, that's such a good question. To find a visual treatment that makes sense, that isn't so f- outside of the realm of the artist that they might be profiling or the brand that they might be profiling. You also kind of want to get your, your stuff in there too. Yeah, you want a little taste. What I would say, advice that I've given to a lot of people that I've worked with, a lot of producers who have been on my team, is you, you can't get all your shit in in any one given video. You have to spread it out. And there's been plenty of times when I've pitched things that was just so, so off base, but I got in my own head that it was something that I wanted to do. For instance, I pitched a video to NBA 2K, and at the time, I really wanted to do something that was like super data mashy and glitch heavy, not even putting a connotation together that uh, that is the worst possible thing that a video game might want to present for itself. <laughs> so after I had already worked on an initial treatment and sent it through to the client and kind of had internal alignment on it, they came back and their, their of course, big overall note was like, you know, we wouldn't want to present anything as as glitchy in the video game especially because they had had issues with like glitches and, and malfunctions in the video game before. I'm like, source subject. Makes total sense. <laughs> Absolutely, you know, we'll fix that right away. Yeah, it seems like one of the, the tensions, it's easy to romanticize an idea and what you could do visually and, you know, how right. you can utilize your directing chops. But then, of course, that might not be best for what the brand is. Yeah, so, so it is a little bit of a dance and, you know, you don't always get it right. Um, off the bat, because you don't know what any sort of delicate subjects might be uh, for a brand kind of until they're until they're brought up. And then even then, you do need to decode it a little bit. That's what I was kind of saying earlier. You do need to speak a few languages to be, I think, a successful producer, because you do need to figure out what the root of every problem is. And sometimes people aren't able to properly enunciate what those issues are and you, you do kind of need to do some digging like okay that that is what you don't want to see or, or here's something that you want to stay away from as long as i know that ahead of time before a shoot it's all very manageable when that day arrives and you show up for the shoot and or shoots depending on how long it is yeah basically at that point it sounds like everything is as meticulously storyboarded yeah, right. as possible and then if there's time you'll do a little experimentation i mean that's what you hope for yeah. um and then it's just the realities of living in the world the weather's bad there's construction people don't show up on time this place is closed a thousand different things are going to happen at least you have a game plan to know what what it is that you need to cover i think that's a big part of it not even as a director as a producer, I think as any kind of storyteller, what is like the bare essentials that you need to get the point across here, to get the story across, to get the brand in there? If you can boil all of that down, okay, now you have the core essentials of what you need because when then everything, all the shit hits the fan, I still know what I need to like make the day to make a video. You'll have something, I'll at have least something. in the can. You I'll can show something. them a image yeah. and of sorts. Hopefully, you know, I actually like when clients on set because then at least I can hopefully say you were there. You you did see that this happened. Not <laughs> that it you, means bro. anything. Yeah, but uh, I do like um, a little bit of accountability from time to time. Yeah, take some of the pressure off in some ways. At least at least psychologically, maybe. Yeah, it's like, yeah. Then everyone you know 
they have a short-term memory loss after the fact, but right. you hope so. So then you've you've shot all this this great content mm-hmm. and it's time for post-production. How often do you feel like this initial dream that you're selling, pitching is a better word, yeah. I think that sounds less like mischievous. When you're in post and finishing it off, how close is that to the original version you had in your mind as you pitch it? Personally, I like to at least start with the structure that I had put together in the treatment because it what's what everybody had signed off on already. So the client was signed off on that structure and those questions. So usually what I'll try to do is put together, even if it's just like a note coming right out of the shoot, these 5, 10, 15 questions. Like we're not going to include everything, but those are the ones that an editor should start working with in terms of getting us to A to B to C. And then you see what the first cut looks like and then you know kind of if you have to go in a totally different direction, if you have to be way more radical with it or or not. But at least I'd like to start where I already had written something up and everybody had kind of approved and aligned on. And that's what we were working off of on the shoot itself before I start kind of messing around. You said earlier something that struck me, which is that when you're creating work, you don't want it to just be a commercial. Right. At the end of the day, a lot of the work that you do is kind of a commercial. Sure. How do you find that line and construct a piece that is a commercial but not a commercial. What does that mean to you when you're creating a story that is for branding but ultimately should be relatable to a viewer and have a heart and a pulse? It's it's tough, and it's always a delicate sort of thing, especially when notes start to come back too. And, and I would say nine times out of ten, those notes are we want to make sure the brand shows up more, the product shows up more, figuring out how to balance that out. I think first and foremost, my thought is let me get somebody's story in there. And if there are natural integrations, okay, let's weave those through throughout. You mean that whoever the profile's on, their personal story? Their personal story, mm-hmm. right. Um, how they got into whatever work they do. It's, it's, it's hard to be super specific about all this because we do like musicians and artists. Sure, yeah, yeah it could um, be anything, right. So how they kind of, their, their love of their art form, how they got into it and kind of what they're excited about in the future. Like let's say that's the boilerplate profile video. Then you have to start to look for opportunities of the brand's messaging and where that could show up. For something like a, like a liquor client, that's that's a little tough. You do really need to figure out like more so the messaging than the product because you can't just all of a th- sudden throw a bottle in there, though I've done that. <laughs> um, so you can, but you, you can. ideally. You don't want to because then everyone's like, oh boy, there's a bottle in there. Right. So you try to find the opportunities that, that make the most sense. I've done really, really dumb ones. I've done ones that I think are better and probably more gentle in terms of the way they like introduce the brand. But also, you know, like I was saying earlier, you, you can't kind of win them all. You can't get all your stuff in there. So you hope for the best. And and sometimes it just, it is what it is. Someone wants their whatever to show up in second one of the video. We try to explain why that's not necessarily going to register with an audience. You know, somebody is just going to tune that out right away because they're going to say, oh, this is an ad. I, I don't care. Becomes very literal sometimes of course. in someone's mind, yeah. What you want to do is warm somebody up to the idea that there is a brand integration there and it's not an ad per se because you're telling a story about something that resonates with them either as a creative or somebody's upbringing or, or whatever okay, now I'm engaged in their story and I'm engaged in this person. Oh, okay, and here's here's where this branch is up. May, hopefully that makes a lot more sense than just like bombarding somebody with product from the get-go. Like I said, I've done them, I've done them all, so. Yeah. I, I know what the other side looks like. And 
I mean, you, you feel it right off the bat because you're obviously, I'm getting paid, so I can't not be invested, <laughs> but your investment level in it kind of does drop off because it's just like, I didn't, this didn't even stand a chance. Yeah. Because it was, it was really just about how does product X show up versus telling a, a story where those two are naturally entwined. When you're telling these stories about artists, or I guess anyone, because yeah. we're talking in the context of doing profile pieces, what is the writing process like when collaborating with said people, artists? You know, you also did um, a collaboration with the notorious B.I.G.'s son, C.J. Yeah. Wallace. But how much of the script writing process comes from talking to the people you're doing the profiles on? Right. And how much of that is kind of written during the shoot and then in post-production? I always want to talk to people as much as I possibly can sure. ahead of a shoot. Sometimes it is limiting just in terms of people's schedule and, and availability and, and the access that you have to them. But what I've done is I will write out boilerplate questions kind of to start in terms of, like I was saying, who are you? How did you get involved in this? What's your favorite part of the process? So on and so forth. Like stuff that tells a kind of easy story and journey and then hope to jump on the phone with them and really start asking all those questions ahead of time. And now I can get the information that's really going to make up more of the specifics. And we kind of just run through the interview to start before we're even shooting. There's a lot you can glean on people's social media channels and their websites and whatever, mm -hmm. but I'd rather be able to talk to somebody, basically run the whole interview at first, you know, a, a light, easy version of it, so I get the specifics. And I, I don't want to be surprised either because it does inform a lot of what I know then I need to shoot. Especially with profile videos, you likely are going to somebody's studio or somebody's hometown or, or whatever to see them create something or, or kind of be a fly in the wall in that process. I want to know that whole process ahead of time because it's going to inform the rest of the day. So I do kind of need to know all of it ahead of time just so I know what like a shot list even looks like. We're speaking about process. I'd like to talk about some work you did with Universal Pictures and DreamWorks Animation in partnership with Firstly Feast. You directed a custom episode of the popular interview show Hot Ones right. where you brought in the animated character Puss from the movie Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. Right as the guest of the show. Now, for context, if listeners have not watched Hot Ones, it's an interview show produced by First We Feast and Complex Media, where hosts Sean Evans ask celebrities and cultural figures questions as they eat progressively more spicy chicken wings. And the hot wings arguably serve as a truth serum in a way. Each round, as a celebrity is interviewed and we get deeper into the show, the wings get progressively spicier. Yeah. And then the guests often get distracted by the heat and sometimes put their guard down, potentially providing more honest answers because they are distracted by the spicy factor. Some are better ha at handling the heat than others, of course. So we have this interview show with spicy wings, and then we have this animated movie, and somehow you have to bridge the gap and bring those two worlds together. What is that process like? So especially working for a publisher that has like always on original programming, that becomes one of those like go-to market products that you can show any client. You know, in terms of Hot Ones, it can just be, do you want to sponsor an episode of Hot Ones and your logo shows up and maybe there's some sort of custom, I don't know, meter or whatever, like 
so-and-so presents this hot meter or whatever during one question. Or you can do something that's fully branded and custom, like the the Puss in Boots thing, and, and this, the structure is already there because everybody at that point knows what an episode of Hot Ones looks like. So it's really just plugging, in this case, uh, a character into, into that structure. Was there any discussion, and I don't know if you directly interfaced with particular people, yeah. but was there a discussion in terms of why it was the right move to choose Hot Ones as a vehicle to promote Puss in Boots? Was it about just how large Hot Ones is as a show that a lot of people watch it each episode? Or yeah. were there other elements involved in terms of, okay, this feels like a good branding crossover? I think it's just the reach probably is how mm-hmm. it starts. Um, that one took so long. I, I don't recall off the top of my head how it started. If I remember correctly, Universal wrote the script for that one. Was it already established that there was going to be a collaboration or was it almost like Universal had an idea to incorporate their story in Taiwan's and they pitched that to First Three Feasts? Yeah, exactly. Okay, and, interesting. And you get that sometimes too, especially with like series that are very popular the client already knows what they want because they know what the structure is and they know what what the the video is. They're like, how can we kind of get the rub here and how could we put our stamp on that? So yeah, it comes from them. And then it was a little bit of like a backwards process in terms of they were scripting it out. Really, they had the concept in mind and it was up to Complex and First We Feast, which is, you know, the channel that runs Hot Ones to align and sign off on their creative, which used our IP. It's interesting. It seems like a unique challenge. Uh, right. You know, you've talked a lot about working in the brand and content space where you're doing these profile pieces. What are the steps you're taking to ensure a successful piece or product when you're taking this Puss in Boots character and incorporating it into this Hot Ones world as a director? Of course, you said the script was already written, so mm-hmm. you had a blueprint. Right. But then what happens? How do you make this all work? For that one specifically, I feel like I probably have, I'm not the most important person in that ecosystem because there is a giant movie attached to it. Uh, DreamWorks is going to come down on set to see how everything is is shaping up. They were also handling all the editing and animation on their end, so they have specific things they know they need. And I'm really there just to kind of guide Sean through a performance against you know, a, an empty chair. But there's so much like internal sign-off that that is kind of like, though it's at the time was my full-time job, that really feels just like a, a director for hire sort of thing where everything is is there for you already and you just kind of have to go on set, keep the day moving, you know, keep the crew abreast of what's going on. Are there any particular tips you developed in terms of directing someone to speak to nothing in a, when they're just facing a blank chair? Is, is there a certain complexity to that <laughs> and how that uh, all comes together? Yeah, try to get options for sure. Uh, try to get different options was a big thing. There was a little bit of experimentation on set in terms of they had already figured out most of Puss's animation, but things they might be able to throw in. So I think at one point he throws like a napkin at Sean and there's some milk that gets spilled all over the place. So you try to experiment a little bit, but because it's so animation heavy, a lot of it's kind of set in stone before you're even shooting anything. So are there renderings of everything before it's done? So in other words, as you direct Sean, you kind of at least have an understanding of visually how this would look. Yeah, it had all been storyboarded out. And then a couple months later, we saw like a rough pass and then... It's, it's really about approving, on our end, uh, how Hot Ones shows up. So 
is the music choice correct? Is the editing pace correct? Just in terms of trying to get it as close to a quote unquote normal episode of Hot Ones as there is. So that was kind of a, the big part on our end on the post side. But even then, I was kind of like not as involved because that's more so for the people who run Hot Ones to sign off on. I was just kind of there to, to facilitate. One of the animators wanted to pour a bucket of milk all over the studio to see how the milk would fall, like onto the chair and the table. Uh-huh. Uh, which I didn't <laughs> think was necessary. Uh, it felt like overkill. It felt like the milk was going to be animated. Um, but I would say my big accomplishment for the day was trying to just make that a one-time only thing. For so the it did si- happen. It did happen. Ask, that was my next question. It did happen. But for the sake of the crew and, and cleaning up afterwards, I said, Lou, if we could just do this once, that would be great. That'd be cool. I couldn't get rid of it completely, but I did try to. How long does it take to uh, clean up a milk spill? Well, if you think ahead and you put down enough tarp, hopefully it's not going to be a big problem. So it was okay, but it did smell a little funky in there after. Ooh. It was real milk. It couldn't have used soy or something, huh? No, it it falls like, differently, I guess. 100% whole milk. Wow. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> when we started, we are talking about how if you had done some of those early profile pieces now mm-hmm. when you were making those ones for – galleries in Chelsea, you might do them different now. And I'm curious, as you've watched the landscape evolve and worked in this space, do you see a different trajectory in terms of the kind of work that will be made moving forward or see how promotional piece and branding content is evolving in your eyes? So, you know, there have been a lot of layoffs in the publishing space recently. And I they're all kind of more or less for the same reason. It's a push to have more influence-driven content, more TikTok influencers, um, creators, kind of put the product in their hand, shoot it for the native platform that it's going on. So in this instance, uh, TikTok, and maybe less of an ask for something that's a bit more highly produced and with that kind of more expensive. That's where it's headed. That Well, it's not even, it, it, we're there. That's what's happening right. right now. I believe that everything's cyclical. And at one point, someone's going to tell somebody to flip their phone uh, horizontally. And then they're like, oh, wow, what if we started putting more money behind the stuff that people are watching on their phone now this way? And it all starts all over again. I get it. I get the reasoning behind it. I think the cosign is more important than it going out to any specific publisher's audience because it's saying this influencer and directly who they're speaking to, they can sell our product. Better than it going out to a publisher, having to put money behind people even seeing it in the first place. Here's kind of almost something that's more direct to consumers. And of course, it's cheaper. It makes total sense. I also think that there's always a push to save money, of course, to have as much happen in-house as possible. What I would be, I guess, bummed by if it went away completely is that I do think the branded sphere is a good training ground for... People working at a certain level, people working within a certain budget level, maybe not a ton of experience to really try things out without a lot of the oversight or pressure that more commercial space has. So I think a lot of really talented people have come out of this branded space and and gotten a lot of like client work and raised their profile a lot in this branded space. It'd be bummed if it goes away because you can't really make any money in music videos. 
but you do need something to kind of bridge the gap there to get you into more commercial jobs or features, just stuff with kind of more budget behind it. This, I think, has a has a nice little stepping stone niche to it that uh, I've certainly benefited from. Uh, a lot of my friends and, and, and coworkers have benefited from. I, I'd be bummed if, it, if it's gone completely. Yeah, I think about that a lot. What you're saying in terms of finding next generations of talent in, right. in the same way that you know, lower budget indie films are kind of disappearing. There's not sure. really funding for them. And it seems like at a certain point, yeah, how do you find and cultivate this new talent if there are no avenues for creators to work in that space and take risks without the budgets being astronomical? Um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, especially living in New York, it's already so hard to live in New York in the first place that you do need to have these opportunities to then subsidize the stuff that you actually want to be making and, and your passion projects. This is like a good middle ground to to make a little bit of money, to have some budget to work with, to to really show your stuff off. That hopefully here's something that you can put out into the world, and, and people do look at at branded stuff. You know, I'm, I'm probably living in an echo chamber, but I feel like my Instagram is is full of that stuff, and everybody who's working on it. But you do see people putting together really really cool work, and then growing out of that. It's interesting. It seems like branding is in. It's a challenging space to be in right now because people's tastes do evolve so rapidly. So it does seem necessary to always kind of flip the script at least a bit to keep up with how people's viewing habits change as well. I mean, yeah, I think it's that should be part of the fun of it. I'm excited to see how I can like incorporate AI into work. I've loved any of the opportunities where I've got to do some sort of like custom animation stuff. The Piss and Boots stuff was fun, but I've also done stuff for video games where I got to like shot list for the video game team, what I wanted characters to be doing to then like integrate it into a video. That was a blast. So I, I loved being able to play in, in not just necessarily like a live action profile piece space when I can. You talked about at the beginning, you went to film school, you went into sound. It sounds like you didn't really anticipate the trajectory that you would go on right. and arrive on. How do you feel being in this space now? What does it feel like when you look back to those early years, taking that professor sound equipment, doing those out-of-town gigs, and then showing up in this point in time. I've been very lucky. I've been very fortunate to get all the opportunities that I've been given and to do a lot of the work that I've been able to. It, it's hard out there. It's, it's a tough field. Just It's a tough world. And, yes. uh, not, you know, some people, it's hard to, to make the rent unless you can kind of find specific things that can bring you constant income. For a while, when I first started producing more, I did kind of keep it quiet that I was like a sound mixer beforehand. I had like horrible, horrible imposter syndrome. Are we supposed to delete the sound element here? <laughs> no, no, no. no. <laughs> and now I'm very, I'm very comfortable talking about it now because I do feel like I have a profile and a resume that that does speak for itself, and and I can confidently speak to producing. But when I first started, I was like so nervous that like that would get out there that I had kind of bullshitted my way into into certain jobs because anyone could have seen like oh I was just sound mixing a week ago but now I mean I wouldn't I wouldn't change that trajectory that I've had because I learned so much being on a lot of different types of sets a lot of sets with no money a lot of really terribly run sets <laughs> in, in all honesty to know what not to do and and how to be able to separate ego from from just the work that needs to be done which is a huge thing that I don't think I would have known had I not seen it, had other people fail at it. Just sitting there courtside watching it. Yeah. 
because, I mean, I get it. I, you know, people get wrapped up into things. It's easy to when you're being creative and you have a vision, no matter who it's for, even if it's just for yourself. But you do need to kind of figure out <laughs> how to keep that stuff to yourself a little bit and how to properly explain yourself to other people to get what you need. Uh, that's a big part, too. So seeing other people do that well or not well was a huge le learning opportunity that you don't necessarily get in film school. You have to be in the field and see how do you interact with other people. Someone told me very early on that like a huge part of this job and working in production is just being like a good hang in all honesty. And I heard somebody say it, I think on your podcast uh, a little while ago, it is just like somebody that you want to be in the trenches with and, and, and deal with for long hours, stressful situations. Is this just something, somebody I want to spend time with they're not going to go crazy. They're not going to drive me crazy. I'm not going to drive them crazy. That's a huge part of it. That's all it comes down to. It's like kindergarten 101. Be yeah. a good friend. <laughs> yeah, totally. Just be a good friend and like know what know what people's needs are. I think that's that's a huge part of being a producer. Just is just knowing what their needs are, knowing where they don't feel comfortable or or what they're looking for and how you could kind of um, get the best out of everybody. As you think about the work you've done, you know, we talked about there's sometimes obviously tumultuous situations like any job. Are there ways you feel like you need to protect your creativity? So much of the day is about planning and going through iterations and dealing with people. Are there certain ways, certain things that you practice in order to be creative while also dealing with all of these logistics? It's tough, but what I try to look for, and I try to give this to other people too, is being able to set up a space where people can fail and have ideas that aren't necessarily the best ones, as long as it's not going to cost an extravagant amount of money or time, let's just do one because here's something we want to try or I, even I want to try and, and then let me be wrong. I will be the first person to acknowledge that I was wrong about something and then we can move on and figure out what the right situation is. But um, I think that's a big part of, I think, protecting creativity across the board, not just my own is that you need the space to, to, to get it wrong so then you could figure out what the, the right approach is and not feel like all of a sudden there's a ton of judgment being laid on you. You did mention certain things that you're interested in exploring in terms of AI, mm -hmm. you know, different artistic approaches. As the media landscape just evolves so rapidly, are there any particular things that excite you in terms of artistic pursuit moving forward and how you can incorporate that into your work? I mean, I just think that as, I don't want to necessarily say just virtual reality, because I think that has a lot of connotations and like a mixed bag of emotions that come with it, but I play a ton of video games also. I think there are other spaces where you can traditionally tell story in like a video capacity and integrate these other elements to it. That gets me excited. I don't necessarily know off the top of my head what those are. I don't play Fortnite, but I see what happens in Fortnite in terms of concerts, in terms of like releasing trailers or whatever. I think that's very cool. That's very exciting. People living more virtually is just something that is happening that is going to continue to be more of our day-to-day. -day. Sure. I think if it's something that you kind of were already doing if you were like gaming or in that space, it's something that kind of makes sense already. So I think we should continue to go like all in on, on that type of integration. That's not to say I want to play a video game and all of a sudden there's like a ton of fucking billboards all over the place. <laughs> or, but I do think there's like fun stuff to be had there. Yeah. The gamification of reality. It's for I mean, why not? Yeah. Why right? not? 
I was playing GTA Online, and which I think is like the real game. Like that's what they really wanted to make, because it's as close to I think in terms of like audience, getting people online, creating an avatar, a house, car, whatever. What happens though in a lot of these games, certainly like the ones that have guns and violence in them, is that everyone just starts blowing each other up, and someone gets like a ton of money, a lot of power, and then you can't play the game. Right. I was playing once, and some dude pulled up on me. And I was like, okay, and I'm just, this guy's going to shoot me and kill me. I had the headset on. He had his headset on. He's like, you want to see some cool stuff in the game? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, cool, get in. So I got in his car, and he just drove me around the map showing me all these things that I didn't know about. And we were just like bullshitting with each other the whole time. <laughs> it was the best. I had a blast. And I was like, ooh, this is, this is what it could be. This is amazing. And there wasn't like any attempt to blow anything up or just like shoot and loot people or whatever. It was just like, let's explore this like virtual map together. It was just a very nice day. <laughs> just like a very nice day in, in Grand Theft Auto. Uh, I loved that. And like, I think, I think about that in terms of, cool, what is like stuff that then I can add to, to that experience in that world that's kind of fun and exciting to think about? That's a beautiful thing. Yeah. <laughs> I had a very beautiful GTA experience. Yeah, one of the few. It's yeah. like, that's a whole other... I'm sure I got blown up right after that, but uh, it's that a, part... It's all about the moment. That part was something else. Yeah. 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 Well, hey, Jared, thanks so much for coming in Thank today. You. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. From the New York City Center for Media Education, this has been CME Presents. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Music is by Jacob Backer, William Hutchison, and Sean Sparacino. If you like what you hear, please rate, subscribe, and review. And don't forget to check out our website at nyccenterformediaeducation.org for more information about media making and filmmaking classes.